Heavenly Father, this is your word. Because it is your word, it never returns void. It never fails to accomplish what you want it to accomplish. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is powerful and effective. It searches us out in the depths of our heart where no one else can see. But thou, Revelator, we are blind and we are stubborn and we are distracted and we are obstinate. We, we can see how this word applies to everybody else around us and not see how it applies to us. So we need your spirit. Great architect, you said, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Build your church and let us not have wasted effort this day. Never sleeping one, you said, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Watch over our cities our homes, our children, our marriages, our widows, our teenagers, our church, and protect us. Help us to get under your word today like little kids who want to get under their dad's arms. This is our corporate plea. Amen. We arrive today at the most disputed passage in Revelation. Christians have disagreed on this text for 2,000 years. It sparked lots of debates and left friendships strained. It's controversial. This is not an easy text. It's notoriously difficult to interpret. John did not lob a softball to us. This is a heater. It's a 105-mile-an-hour fastball, but we don't want to strike out. We want to make contact. We desire to get out of this text what God intended for us to come away with. Maybe a third of you are new Christians, and you're going into this text with fresh eyes. The other two-thirds have already been exposed, and you come to the text with preconceived notions. Some of you are non-Christians, and you're like, I'm not even wearing your jersey, your baseball uniform. How am I supposed to hit this fastball? Well, I intend to be your coach, to guide you, to guide everyone. So here's how it's going to happen in three movements. First, Kyle's humble but accurate interpretation of Revelation 20. That's a bit tongue-in-cheek here. But this is where I'm going to walk through all 15 verses with no comment on how others would disagree with me. The first movement is the entire expositional sermon. We will be on this first movement for quite a while. First, Kyle's humble but accurate interpretation of Revelation 20. Second, other theologians humble but accurate in their minds interpretation of Revelation 20. This is where I will walk you through the millennial maze that 2,000 years of church history has produced. Finally, 
Or, or firstly, rather, Kyle's humble but accurate interpretation of Revelation 20. Secondly, other theologians' humble but accurate in their minds interpretation of Revelation 20. Thirdly, agreed upon take-homes from all strong theologians who interpret Revelation 20. I will bring this text to your front porch. I will not leave it in the seminary classroom. I, I will have you going home thinking the millennium makes sense now. I know what my response should be. This is how it should affect my relationship with other Christians. This is how it should affect, affect my relationship with my local church. This is how it should affect my worldview. I will bring it home. That's the roadmap. Now let's get after it. There are four scenes in our text. Scene number one, on earth, verses one through three. Scene number two, in heaven, verses four through six. Scene number three, on earth, verses seven through 10. Scene number four, in heaven, verses 11 through 15. These scenes go back and forth from earth to heaven. Let's begin with scene one, on earth. We find it in verse one. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. This mighty angel steps down from heaven to earth holding chains in his hand. These chains are used to bind war criminals. It wasn't only hand chains, but leg irons, sometimes even a steel collar to go around the neck. Why is he holding them? Because they are about to be put to use. He grabbed the dragon, that old snake, the devil himself. We are given four names for him. The dragon, pictured symbolically here as a dragon breathing fire out of his mouth. The most common designation for Satan, dragon, 13 times in the book. Second, the serpent. This is a look back to the garden. The devil. This is the slanderer, the accuser. Satan. He's the adversary. Every New Testament writer attests to Satan's existence. He's real. He's mentioned more in Revelation than any other book of the Bible. This dragon is seized. The serpent is trapped. The accuser is muzzled. The enemy of the church is in chains. He's limited in his movements. And I want to point out to you that an angel did this. Not God the Father. Not God the Son. An angel. This created being has the power to bind the other created being. God and Satan are not equal players. Satan is more like you than God. He's not equal with God. 
He's not an equal counterpart. He's a fallen angel and therefore the same strength as angels. Now let's answer three questions. When was Satan bound? How was Satan bound? How long is Satan bound? When was Satan bound? I contest that Satan was bound during the first century. When Jesus' public ministry began. That's when Satan was bound. Now, let me back up that statement. The motif of Satan being bound runs throughout the New Testament. And you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, Jesus told a group of people, he said, demons are being cast out, miracles are taking place, people are getting saved because I've bound Satan. He, he then asked them a question. How can someone enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods until first he's bound the strong man? Beginning at Jesus' public ministry, he bound the strong man, the dragon. It began during Jesus' ministry and it was secured in the legal fact in his death and resurrection. You can't get away from the fact that Jesus understood Satan as already bound. John writes to these seven local churches saying, the dragon is bound. And he's been that way for 60 years since Jesus started his public ministry. When was Satan bound? Now, how was Satan bound? Kyle, seriously. Kyle, are you telling me that Satan is bound right now? Yes, I am. Well, well, have you watched the news? Do you have social media? Satan isn't bound. You're telling me that Satan was bound during the Holocaust? Sounds like Satan was loose. When this passage talks about binding, it's talking more in the deception category. It does not mean that Satan is not active. He's still active. He still has influence. But he's bound in a particular way. He's bound from doing what he ultimately wants to do, stomp out the church. He's bound from, look at verse 3, bound from deceiving the nations. He can still kill, but cannot deceive on a mass level. Satan is on a leash. The dragon is on a leash held by God. He's being prevented from employing worldwide conspiracy. His deceptive powers are limited, bound. In the Old Testament, very few non-Jews got saved. There are instances, but certainly not on a mass scale like we find after the cross. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28... All power is now given unto you to preach the gospel to the nations. The nations no longer have blinders on. I've bound Satan. In the Old Testament, almost total deceiving of the nations. They were not hearing the gospel. Now suddenly, Jesus tells his disciples out of nowhere, the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. Some from every kindred, tribe, nation, tongue will be his. The angel bound Satan, verse 3, so that 
he might not deceive the nations any longer. Because that's what he had been doing. Non-Jews got saved in the Old Testament. But nothing like after the resurrection of Jesus. The conversions in the nations exploded after that one event. The resurrection. This, this whole event shows Christ's triumph on earth. He's bound the strong man. The purpose here of Satan's confinement... The purpose of the confinement is not to punish Satan, but to prevent him. The punishment comes later in the lake of fire. Spoiler alert, Satan will be released in a few verses. And guess what he does as soon as he is released? He does what he always wanted to do, deceive the nations. How long is Satan bound? Look at, look at verse 2. He's bound for 1,000 years. 1,000 years is mentioned six times. Verse 2, verse 3, 4, 5, 6, and verse 7. The word millennium comes from the Latin word for 1,000. That's why the 1,000 years is called the millennium. And you might think, okay, Kyle, I'm finally tracking with you. Jesus lived about A.D. 30 so at a thousand years, that would put Satan's release about A.D. 1030. What was going on A.D. 1030? Well, Dan Herbster told me that's when the Vikings were raiding everyone. Is that when Satan was released? Was he a Viking? No. I think 1,000 years should be understood symbolically. Just like all the other numbers in Revelation. In that apocalyptic genre. Seven speaks of perfection and is used 55 times in the book. Ten speaks of completion. One thousand is ten cubed. I do read the Bible literally. I think John is literally using numbers as symbols. It's the genre. This one thousand years doesn't have to be one thousand literal years. Just like Satan doesn't have to be a literal fire-breathing dragon. This time period could be 1,000 years, could be 2,000 years, could be 3,000 years, could be 7,000 years. It's already been 2,000 years since Jesus walked on the earth, so we know it's at least that long. Now, are there other verses in the Bible that mention 1,000 years? Yes. Psalm 50, verse 10. God owns the cattle on 1,000 hills. Now, does that mean that he only owns the cattle on those hills and not the cattle on the 1,001 hill? No. 2 Peter 3, 8. One day to the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Uh, Psalm 105, 8 and Deuteronomy 7, 9. God will remember his covenant for 1,000 generations. Thousand is not one more than 999. It's speaking of completeness. That 1,001 generation isn't out of luck. God's like, I, I cover the first thousand, you're on your own. No. My interpretation of this thousand years is consistent with every other thousand used in the Bible and consistent with the genre of Revelation. Now, church, I know you're used to me giving you my applications at the end of the sermon, but there's a couple that I just, I have to give you right up front. Application number one, Satan can incite persecution, but he cannot destroy the church. 
The bound Satan can incite persecution, but he cannot destroy the church. Be not too quick to bury the church before she is dead. The church will thrive while Satan is bound. Count on that, friend. She may be persecuted, but she will not be destroyed. She may go underground, but she will be growing. Whatever conflict the church is facing in the West or the East or any place on the map, the conflict is not fatal. This will help you face persecution well. Maybe even die well. Satan can kill some, but he can't destroy the bride. The bride is being beautified. She's being built up. She's being perfected. Church, do not ever fear a, a raised fist. That's Satan on a leash, angry because he couldn't deceive you, the nations. Application number two. Satan can deceive some, but he can't deceive the nations. Satan can deceive some, but he can't deceive the nations. And church, this is why you must evangelize. This is why you must be aggressive with those you work with, sharing the gospel and pressing them on their sin. The missionary enterprise, let me give you a whole new category for missionary. The missionary enterprise, the undeceiving of the nations, has taken place. The blinders are off. The gospel will penetrate. That's why you need to share the gospel with your Indian neighbors and your red-blooded flag-waving Americans. The gospel overpowers deception. From your neighborhood to the ends of the earth, the strong man is bound. Jesus tells these seven churches to whom Revelation is addressed, Satan's bound, the gospel is powerful, start speaking it. When you share the gospel with people, you need to rehearse in your mind. As you're sharing, you need to rehearse in your mind. This is a powerful gospel. And Satan's deceptive power is bound. It's, it's perfect time for plunder. As a church, let's just commit. Let's plunder Satan's joint. Side note, the recipients of this letter were members of, of seven local churches not located in Jerusalem but located among the nations. And most of the members of this church were, were non-Jews. They were Gentiles. And they are saved because Jesus bound Satan's power to deceive them. Scene number two in heaven. So the scene shifts from earth to heaven. We have John's code words for this shifting scene used all throughout the book. Then I saw, used over and over. So I, I see this as the same period of time as the first three verses, but from a different perspective. You saw the 1,000 years from earth's perspective in verses 1 through 3. Now you're seeing the 1,000 years from heaven's perspective in verses 5 through 6, uh, 4 through 6. Let, let's read verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also... I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
Now, this is what's been going on in heaven since Jesus' public ministry. Let's answer two questions. Who is reigning during the millennium? Where are they reigning during the millennium? Who is reigning during the millennium? It's those who have been beheaded. Romans often executed Christians with an axe to the neck, thus beheading them. The church at Pergamum, one of the seven churches addressed, knew one of these people ruling in heaven. It was Antipas. That church member mentioned all the way back in chapter 2 that was killed for his faithful witness of Christ. But this isn't just ancient Christian martyrs, but present day ones. This also includes the Christian martyr who just died today in India and Africa. The text, they are living martyrs. Catch the irony? Living martyrs. But it's not just martyrs that get to experience this millennial reign in heaven. It's those who refuse to have the mark of the beast. Those who follow the lamb wherever he goes until they met him face to face. These are all Christians now with the Lord. Your Christian father who is with the Lord. Your late spouse who is now with the Lord. Where are they reigning during the millennium? Well, let me ask you a question here, church. Do you see anything here to suggest that this is occurring on earth? Anything to suggest that the sacrificial animal sacrifices have been restored? That the temple in Jerusalem been rebuilt? And that they are reigning from there? No. They are reigning in heaven, and that's proven by two statements. First, thrones. Whenever you see the word throne, it never refers to thrones on earth. It always refers to thrones in heaven. Always heavenly scenes, not earthly scenes. Thus, this reign is heavenly. Forty-seven times, God and humans are on a throne, and they are always in heaven. First, thrones. Second, souls. John sees souls here, not bodies. These are disembodied souls. They are in the intermediate state between death and final resurrection. They are not yet reunited with their bodies. John purposefully draws a distinction between soul and body. They came to life after their death to reign with Christ in heaven. Their soul left their body to be with Jesus and reign. Scene number three, on earth. That scene begins in verse seven. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Like we've done with other scenes, I want us to answer three questions. When will Satan be released, unbound? What is he released to do? What is his ultimate end? First, when will Satan be released, unbound? He will be released when the thousand-year millennium has ended. Jesus told us that the days right before his return would be the worst days. Satan, now notice this. We've had a lot of prison breaks lately. Satan does not escape from his prison. He's released. He will walk away in apparent freedom. 
Why is he released instead of being sent straight to hell? Well, that leads us to our second question. What is he released to do? He's released to first deceive the nations. He launched out into his Old Testament work of blinding the eyes of the nations. He's doing what he could not do when he was, distrain- when he was restrained. Deceive the nations. Verse 8. And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Now, church... Tying this to any nation today, as some revelation schemes attempt to do, is unwarranted. This is not pointing to Russia or China or even Iraq. Gog and Magog are the mysterious regions referenced in Ezekiel 38 and 39. They are used symbolically here to represent the nations of the world as they band together against Christ. Don't pull out a map and try to find where they are. Theology is more the intention here than geography. Gog and Magog are used as a theological model of those nations who set themselves against Christ. Satan is released first to deceive the nations, then to gather an army. The end of verse 8. To gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. You may remember the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore and he called up two beasts. Well, he did more than that. He's called up now some from all nations. They are millions strong. The sand of the sea. Have you ever heard that phrase before? It's the promise that God made to Abraham. Continuing this theme of imitation that Satan employs throughout the book. Imitation of the Trinity, imitation of the mark on the forehead, and now imitation of the number of followers like the sand of the sea. They gathered for battle. What is this battle? It is the same battle found in chapter 19 where Christ won the victory on a white horse. The very same language is used. It's the final end time battle that we've seen four times in the book. Chapter 9, chapter 16, chapter 19, now chapter 20. This is the battle of Armageddon. This is the battle with Christ riding a white horse. We see recapitulation, the same battle found in multiple places. It's the very same event recorded for us from different camera angles. It recapitulates, retells the story from a different perspective. What does Satan do with his temporary freedom? He deceives the nations, and then he gathers them for battle. What is his ultimate end? Verse 9. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. In the original language, were is not there. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This this surrounded, sieged camp and beloved city is speaking of the people of God. They're attacking the people of God. But Jesus loves them and protects them and he consumes the invaders. 
the, the judgment of Satan anticipated throughout the book has finally arrived. He's thrown into hell with no possibility of parole. He will burn around the clock for ages without end. One of my old profs used to say, human language is incapable of describing the glories of heaven and the horrors of hell. Non-Christian, do not follow Satan to hell. God in his mercy has allowed you to hear this gospel this day. Repent and believe. People will either share in the bliss of heaven or burn in the lake of fire. Charles Spurgeon used to say, when you begin to think lightly of hell, you will soon think lightly of the cross. Scene number one on earth. Scene number two in heaven. Scene number three on earth. Scene number four in heaven. Let's read verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged. Each one of them according to what they had done. Listen to me, church. This is a white throne. The whiteness of this throne symbolizes God's own purity, the righteousness with which he judges. There's no partiality, no tainted evidence. And the fact that the earth and sky fled away is simply another way of describing the cosmic upheaval of God's judgments and the trauma brought to bear on creation. This is more recapitulation. Over and over in Revelation, we've seen storms, earthquakes, mountains being destroyed, islands drowning. The creation was subjected to the curse because of man's sin and is now fleeing away, never to be seen again. It's a white throne. It's a great throne. A mega throne. Great in its stature and importance. Now let's answer two questions. Who is standing before the great white throne? What is God doing on the great white throne? Who is standing before the great white throne? Verse 12. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne. This is a mirrorism giving you two extremes. Every person from every social standing, the somebodies and the nobodies, the dead without distinction, all of them, no rich person can pay to get out of it. No small person can avoid it by hiding. It is my conviction that there will be both Christians and non-Christians at this great White throne judgment. And this is evident from the fact that there are two sets of books. 
the books and the book of life. There's going to be books in heaven. I'm happy about this. I like to read. The books that are opened contain the record of everything that every non-Christian has ever done or said. And they are judged on their works. There's a heavenly record of human deeds. If you're not a Christian, this is not going to be a good resurrection for you. You're not going to like what's written in these books. The books are filled with deeds done. Your jokes will be here. Your internet search history will be here. Your sex life will be here. That's the books. Then we have the book of life. What is the book of life? Well, the book of life, this is a roster, a registry of citizens, a membership role of God's elect. In it are the names inscribed from eternity past, written before the foundation of the world, written before creation. If you're in Christ, you will not be judged on your works. You will be judged based on the works of another, your Christ. We will not suffer the consequences for our sinful deeds because that penalty was paid for us on the cross. Now, I want to answer this question because I've received it numerous times. Kyle, will there be shame and regret that day for the Christian? Will there be shame and regret that day for the Christian? I don't think so. I don't. But if there is, if there is tears for rewards lost and sins committed, they will be wiped away by our Christ. Now, I do think we will be shocked at whose names are in the book and whose names are not in the book. The pretenders that were among us, but were not of us. Christians, those of you that have had horrible things happen to you in the past, Christians, this judgment of non-Christians is comforting for you. Whatever that person did to you will be brought up to them by God. Rest assured, he will handle that judgment. People do not get away with things. What is God doing on the great white throne? Well, besides reading books, he's passing the judgment. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. It's called the second death because it comes after the first death. Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let, let me pose a question. Why does God need to look in the book of life to see the names? Did he forget who he wrote down before the foundation of the world? No. This is not jogging God's memory. This is a tool to warn you. Dear non-Christian, this is your fate away from Christ. The note of final judgment rings over and over in this book. It is a warning. Now, church, are you ready for point number two? Kyle's humble but accurate interpretation of Revelation 20. Other theologians humble but accurate in their minds interpretation of Revelation 20. In the first movement, I'm taking you to church. 
And the second movement, I'm taking you to seminary. Now, I could stop at the first movement and be fine. That's all that's required of me as a pastor, a faithful exposition of the text. But I think, I really think this is going to be helpful for you. It's going to be heady, but it's going to be helpful. Church, I have prepared for you the chart of all charts. It is the full and final chart, the true and better chart. And some of you are just going to get saved all over again viewing it. I call it the millennial maze. It's so big, uh, you know, poor Matthew, he couldn't fit it all on one slide. He started seizuring, having a seizure when I sent it to him. If you email us, we'll, we'll send it to you. But let, let's, let's just back up a minute. Okay, so we've stepped away from the text. Let's get the big view. What is the millennium? The millennium is the 1,000-year period referred to in Revelation 20. There are three eschatological schools of thought. There are premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. These terms are theological shorthand to refer to how you view the millennium. The prefix pre means before. So this camp says that Christ will return before the millennium. So they're preaching that text way different than I just did. Okay, post is at, you say amen because you don't, you don't like it? No, I'm just kidding. I, I know, I know. <laughs> you, you, you just like me on this. All right, post means after. Christ returns after the thousand-year millennium. Okay, the one in the middle that I skipped. A, that means without, not, or no. Without, not, or no. It literally means no millennium. That's not the best title. You can't believe in the Bible and not believe in a millennium. Th this name was given to the Amil guys as a term of derision. They didn't, didn't self-title themselves this. They were given this because they do not believe in the literal 1,000-year reign. Rather, they see it as symbolic language that describes the church age. And the title is a bit of a, a misnomer. Uh, they, they do believe in a millennium. In fact, they believe we're living in the millennium. They believe in a realized millennium that we're in it now. Uh, if I were picking the terminology, I wouldn't go with this. I, I would go with something a little different. I would go with premillennial, postmillennial, and the amillennial I would call now millennial or realized millennial. If the prefix pre means before and the prefix post means after, then the prefix now means in it. So let me just lay my cards out on the table. I am a cautious amillennialist. I could be wrong, but that's where I land. Let's, let's define these. Let's, let's give a little definition to them. Now, my definition is going to be more than this, but it's not less than this. Okay, within each scheme, there are variations of interpretation. So give me, you know, give me a little, little grace on, on this. Definition premillennial. Christ will return... And there will be a, 1,000 year, one, a literal 1,000-year reign on earth before the establishment of the new heaven and the new earth. In other words, there will be 365,000 24-hour days. Their literal sequence is, number one, Jesus returns. Number two, there's a 1,000-year reign. Number three, there's final judgment. 
The final judgment doesn't come until after there's a 1,000-year reign on earth. Now, let's talk about what the millennialists believe. This is where I land. The 1,000 years are symbolic. They are speaking of the period between Christ's time on earth until his second coming. This is symbolic language used to demonstrate that Christ is sovereign and Satan is bound. Now let's talk about post-mill. And we got, we have, we got all three in our church. Post-mill. There will be a 1,000-year golden age on earth before Christ returns to establish the new heaven and the new earth. The, the millennium will actually be brought about gradually by evangelism. The world will be Christianized. Post-millennialists usually point to the Great Commission arguing that it will be entirely successful. So Christ returns to a, a saved world, not to save the world. All right, so let's look at the outlook of, of, of each of these. Post-millennialists, they're the most optimistic because they're consistently saying things are getting better. The world is going to get better. They anticipate a general increase of justice, order, and goodness in the world, and it will be a perfect utopia during that time. There is still sin, just very little of it, until finally the kingdom is established in its fullness. And, and I think this is the most pleasant position. I like this one the best, if evidence didn't play a factor in it. The post-mill guys say that the period before Jesus' second coming will be the best in human history. The pre-mill guys say that it will be the worst. The world will continue to become more unjust, chaotic, and opposed to the kingdom of God, which is why others <laughs> refer to them as the most pessimistic. Now, the IML guys try to take the high road, and they like to say, we're not pessimistic, we're not optimistic, rather, we are realistic. They say that good and evil will continue on the earth together, like the proverbial wheat and the tares growing in the field, until Jesus returns. Now, let's move to the proponents for each of these, these schemes. Now, I'm taking you heady here. I'm going to bring you back down. But I'm, I'm taking you heady here for a bit. There are two camps that hold to the premillennial position. But they are vastly different in how they interpret the whole book. They just happen to land at the same place on the millennium. Historic premill conceptually is a lot closer to amill than dispensational premill. And the fact that I'm lumping historic premill with dispensational premill, some of these historic guys will, will, will not like that. They interpret the whole book just like I do with the exception of this one chapter. And I hesitate to lump these two groups together with fear that, that some may roll over in their grace. But I'm going to take the step. Historic pre-mill can be traced back to the second century. Dispensational pre-mill was developed by John Nelson Darby in the 19th century. Relatively recent view. It actually caught on rapidly in the United States through the Bible conference movement. It was popularized by C.I. Schofield in the notes to his reference Bible and was systematized by uh, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, which is a solid seminary. The Left Behind series furthered it. Let's talk about some of these proponents. Historic pre-mill. We've got Clement, A.D. 100. Ignatius, A.D. 107. So we're very early here. 
uh, Papias, A.D. 130, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Tertullian. Then you go, these are some names you, you may be familiar with. Uh, 1700s, you got John Wesley. 1800s, you've got Charles Spurgeon. Some modern guys who are historic pre-mill. Uh, Millard Erickson, Herschel York, D.A. Carson, Brian Chapel, Jim Hamilton, John Piper, George Ladd. George Ladd wrote the strongest argument by far for the, for the post-mill position. You can read it. Uh, Wayne Grudem. Now, some guys in the, in the dispensational pre-mill camp, uh, Billy Graham, the majority of Southern Baptist churches, if you're familiar with them, uh, David Jeremiah, Daniel Aiken, which was the president of the seminary where I graduated from, John MacArthur, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, Stephen Davey, John Wolford, uh, Robert Mounts, Warren Wearsby, and Erwin Lutzer, the pastor, former pastor of Moody Church. Now, let's look at some proponents of the all-millennial position. Now, as I'm looking at it, I don't know if you can see that. I struggle to see it here, and I feel like I'm a lot closer than a lot of you. Um, let, let's go through some of these. We're early, but not quite as early on as the historic pre-mill. Uh, Hippolytus, uh, Origen, 254. Um, Dionysius of, of Cyprian, 258. Tychonius, Augustine the big one there, A.D. 430, Andrew of Caesarea, A.D. 637, some reformers that were all mill, uh, John Wycliffe, Zwingli, Martin Luther, John Calvin, most of your reformers were, were all mill. Some modern guys that are all mill, Gerhardus Voss, Louis Burkhoff, John Murray, Sinclair Ferguson, John Gratian Metchum, A.W. Pink, uh, John R. Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones, J.I. Packer, Tim Keller, J. Adams, Owen Strachan, Vadi Bauckham, Graham Goldsworthy, R.C. Sproul, Mark Dever, Sam Storms, Paul Washer, J.K. Bill. He wrote the most uh, thorough commentary to date on it. Dennis Johnson, Kevin DeYoung, Leon Morris, C.S. Lewis, Robert Plummer, which I think is the best Greek scholar currently alive. Most scholars in the reform camp today are, are Amil. And you say, you're just saying that because you're Amil, Kyle. No, that... I've heard John MacArthur, who is a dispensational pre-mill, say that most of the Reformed scholars today are land in the all-mill camp. Uh, Nancy Guthrie. Some of you ladies listen to her podcast. She's not a pastor, of course, because she interprets 1 Timothy 2 correctly, so she teaches ladies. But um, she is, she is all-mill as well. Okay, post-mill. Now, notice the dates here. Notice how early on these others started, and then, and then this one. Um, Thomas Brightman, he was an English Puritan. John Owen. 1683, John Flavel, I call him uh, Flavor Flav, uh, Matthew Henry, you, maybe you've seen Matthew, he, li he likes to talk a lot, he's got the big commentary, Jonathan Edwards, now Jonathan Edwards is John Piper's dead mentor, so you've got John Piper who's historic pre-mill and the guy he, he reads after the most and, and would have loved to, to meet would have been Jonathan Edwards and they're different on this issue, George Whitfield, Charles Wesley, You've seen his brother in a different view on the millennium. John, John and Charles have different views. The early Puritans, many American evangelicals before World War I, Charles Hodge, Ian Murray. Ian Murray wrote the book on the Puritans' view of postmillennialism. Postmill was particularly popular among the Puritans in England and America. Postmillennialism dominated. Okay, I am talking about dominated. They dominated the 1700s. 
Some modern guys, uh, dead and alive, that hold to this. Doug Wilson, Craig Kester, B.B. Warfield, George W. Truitt, and B.H. Carroll. Now, I see weaknesses in, in every position. I do. This is gonna be on, I'm just going to be honest with you. I see weaknesses in every position. I see the least number of weaknesses in my position, so that, that's why I hold to it. But I don't deny there's even still questions with my position. So let's, let's talk about some weaknesses here. Weaknesses of the, of the, of the pre-mill. In this scheme, during the millennium, the thousand-year reign, you have glorified people and unglorified people on earth at the same time. So you have people walking on sand that can die and some people that can't die. So I, I see that as a weakness. Uh, another weakness, repopulating the kingdom. Uh, they view chapter 19 and 20 in chronological order. They do not do that recapitulation stuff I've been teaching you. So at the end of chapter 19, all the non-Christians were killed. Remember that? They were eaten by birds. So, so how are there nations of non-Christians? This would be my question to them. So how are there nations of non-Christians that will be thrown into hell in chapter 20? They're all destroyed in chapter 19. Now, they say the lost people were the kids of Christian people who grew up and became adults. Another weakness I see here, people coming to Christ after the second coming of Christ. I don't think that will happen. I think when Christ returns, that's it. Um, the Old Testament millennial texts don't fit. I'll talk about that later. Separate judgments. Tom Schreiner points out that in Scripture, nowhere do they separate the judgments from the, from the final return of Christ. If pre-mill is correct, the judgment of the sheep and the goats do not occur at the same time. And I would argue that Matthew 25 says they do occur at the same time. All right, now let's look at some weaknesses with, with my position. Um, could you just delete that whole column? Because there are, right, no, no, well, I have weaknesses in my position. The early church was decidedly historic pre-mill. About AD 200, this scheme began to grow and Augustine popularized it. Another weakness here, number two, our millennialists think that once they've disproven the pre-mill position, they have established their position. And they need to just go, go a little bit further. Number three, resurrection means two different things in this scheme. So I'm saying there's a place in, in, in our text today where resurrection is speaking of a spiritual resurrection, and that would be the only time that it's speaking of that. Now, N.T. Wright argues that, that it's physical resurrection everywhere except for this one spot in chapter 20, and so do all our millennialist theologians. Uh, another weakness here would be the tribulation and the millennium are at the same time. Because I'm telling you you're in tribulation times. And I'm also telling you you're in millennial times. So you have simultaneously experiences of gospel victory and suffering for the gospel. Now let's talk about some weaknesses with the post-mill position. The, the biggest, I think, it was developed in the 16th century. It's novel. It flourished in the 18th and 19th centuries. But after two world wars... And the Great Depression, the view started to die out. They started thinking, man, maybe the world is not getting better. When the church does really well, this view grows. Uh, another weakness is it's held by very few today. In the late 19th and 20th century, post-mill was displaced in popular circles by dispensational pre-mill. Um, another weakness, they don't see Jesus on the white horse as his second coming, which every other position does. Now, Strengths. What are some strengths of these positions? Pre-mill, some strengths there. They make Revelation 12 and 20 go together really well. When, when Satan was, was cast out of heaven and then 20, cast out of heaven to earth and then here when he's thrown into a pit, they, they have got that 
planned out really well. Um, another, another strength here, they deal with chapter 20, verse 5, the resurrection text I was talking to you about, very thoroughly. I didn't deal with it in depth in my exposition, but I did deal with it in the footnotes of my manuscript, and I can, I can send you this 50-page document. If you're curious, we're only on page 39. So just, you know, <laughs> chill out there a little bit. They've got an argument. I will not deny it. I'm not convinced by it, but I will not deny that they've, they've got an argument. All right, now, strengths for the amel position. I think it's genre conscious. I've talked to you on and on about apocalyptic genre, and I think this position honors the genre the best. Another, another strength, it, it wasn't an issue for 1,200 years because all Christians held an amel position. America is 245 years old. The Christian church held to amel for four times longer than America has existed. A third strength, Old Testament millennial, prom millennial promises. All the so-called millennial promises in the Old Testament say that it's going to last forever, not a thousand years. And, and so they don't point to the millennium, they point to the new earth, chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation. If you look at some of those, Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, and you do a side-by-side -side with, with Revelation chapter 20, None of that is alluded to in chapter 20. It's all alluded to in chapter 20 and 21. That is all fulfilled. All these millennial Old Testament promises are fulfilled in the new heaven and the new earth, not, not the millennium. And I think this position is, is the most consistent with New Testament resurrection passages. Now, let's move on. The strengths for post-mill position, they launched tremendous, tremendous mission movements. I think another strength of this is it changes how you think about the culture around you. How can you redeem it? It is the most optimistic for the church's influence on society. Post-mail do not have this like, well, we're not going to win. No, they, they have the most optimistic for the church's influence on society. Um, and then I, th I think their perspective is a strength. The end of the world is not on top of you just because it's rough in your little corner. Now, all these groups sometimes gang up on each other. <laughs> it's funny. For instance, some, not all, but some historic pre-mill, some say it can, it's literal, some say it is, um, it's symbolic, but some historic pre-mill, some post-mill, and all ah-mill may all point to the dispensationists and say, how can you not see 1,000 years as symbolic? Those three groups may also say, how could you not believe we're going through the tribulation? Of course we're going through the tribulation. Now, the dispensationalists may point in their own camp to the historic pre-mail guys and say, you interpret every chapter symbolically except chapter 20. We are, we are consistent in our interpretation, you are not, which I agree with them. I see the historic pre-mail guys landing where I land on everything except for chapter 20. The, the ah-mill and post-mill guys point to both pre-mill groups and ask, how can you not believe that Jesus returns after the millennium? And then, and then the pre and the post kind of join together and they say to the Amil guys, how in the world do you not see the millennium as future? Now, church, I just want to give you a little historical perspective. If you were a Christian living in the 1700s and you were not post-mill, what is wrong with you? If, if you were a Christian in America in the last 200 years, other than maybe the last 30 years where there's been a resurgence of amillennialism. But if you were a Christian in America in the last 200 years, you might think, how could you not be a dispensational pre-mill? Now, let me, let me further that perspective. 
There have been bad Bible teachers, some straight heretical, that hold to all three of these positions. The crazies are not limited to one scheme. The crazies that predict when the Lord is coming back and dates and they have billboards on it, the crazies on TBN who are always trying to get your money, nearly all of them are pre-mill. The heretical Roman Catholic Church holds to Amil. I don't like that, but it is what it is. Your theological liberals who place more emphasis on making the world a better place from which to go to hell, yeah, they're post-mill. Don't throw away a view just because some bad Bible teacher holds to it. There's bad ones in every camp. A little more perspective here. There's an alternative view, and you're like, yes, I need it. There's an alternative view. We've got pre-mill, we've got ah-mill, we've got post-mill, we've got pan-mill. If pre means before, and a means without, and post means after, then pan means it's all going to pan out in the end. I could have skipped the whole second point, Kyle. I didn't even need it. This is where many of you land. You think, Kyle, seriously, how could I be expected to form a decisive view on the matter when there's not enough information? Or you could be like Tom Schreiner, who I think is the strongest New Testament scholar alive, and he keeps changing his position on the millennium. It's so annoying to me. It's like he believes whoever he reads last. He's actually now developed a new variety called New Creation Millennialism. He's a good man. He sent it to one of our pastors, and I read it, in which he combines amillennialism and, and historic pre-mill. John Frame, many of you have read after him, he said, and I quote, Through my career, I have avoided the millennial question like the plague. <laughs> Needless to say, I have never been asked to teach a course in eschatology. <laughs> End quote. Okay. Kyle's humble but accurate interpretation of Revelation 20. Other theologians humble but accurate in their minds interpretation of Revelation 20. Now the third movement, agreed upon take-homes from all strong theologians who interpret Revelation 20. In the first movement, I took you to church. In the second movement, I took you to the seminary. In the third movement, I'm taking you home. And all God's people said? Three take-homes. Take-home number one. If you get angry or frustrated because someone does not hold your interpretation of the millennium, it reveals more about you than it reveals about them. This has become a very divisive issue among conservative Christians, biblical inerrantists. It, it, it leads to endless disputes and bitter feelings. It just pulls out the spiritual immaturity in people. I, I, I don't know that lives have been lost over this or blood spilled, but cooperations have ended and friendships have been strained. It's been said that the millennium is a thousand years of peace that Christians like to argue about. They have been arguing about the millennium for over a millennium. Don't get mad and make ridiculous overstatements. Like I heard one pre-mail guy who said, anyone who studies Revelation 20 and walks away not thinking that the millennium will last literally 1,000 years with Christ as its literal king, he has wax in his eyes and blinders, wax in his ears and blinders on his eyes. 
Now, that's Stephen Davey, one of my mentors. <laughs> There's no need for statements like that. Or one that I heard from an Amil guy who said, I would have to give up my belief in the inerrancy of Scripture to hold to a pre-meal position. That was Sam Storms. Now, none of that is helpful, and it's childish. I heard John MacArthur talking about those in the Amil camp, and he said, there is absolutely... And it's going to surprise you that John MacArthur is so sure on this, but there is absolutely no exegetical reason or source for this conclusion, end quote. Take your position, but don't overstate it. John MacArthur didn't really mean that. He's just overstating his argument, and I know that because he has Amil guys preach at every conference he holds at his church. Now, I wanted to recommend to you two different panel discussions that I watched where pastors got together and talked about their different views on the millennium. They are all guys that were on, on my chart. But as I started watching, they started arguing and taking it personal. And I'm thinking, I'm trying to pastor my flock, my church, and I'm trying to pastor them through this. You men need to be helping me out instead of getting defensive. Now, this insulting of people who hold another position is not new. Eusebius, who lived in the 4th century, when discussing the pre-mill view of Papias, mocked him, dismissing his arguments as coming from a person of, and I quote, limited intelligence. <laughs> this childishness among Christians has gone on a long time. Don't let it divide you. If you get unhealthily emotionally involved in this, it is because you've attached your identity to this gray issue. You should not get your identity from your position on the millennium. You should get your identity from the finished work of Jesus Christ. All right, that's take home number one. Take home number two. You must learn to triage the millennial debate. Years ago, Al Mohler wrote an article calling for theological triage. Now, you know what medical triage is. We've got many medical people here. That's, that's you treat a gunshot before you treat a broken nose. And then you treat a broken nose before you treat a hangnail. That's medical triaging. Theological triaging is assigning priority to theological differences. It is the process of assorting differences into groups that are ranked in terms of importance. So let me give you a, another one, another chart. There are three different tiers, tier one, tier two, tier three. Tier one, these are things that are worth dying for. These are heels to die on. Examples, the exclusivity of Christ. We're going to die on that. Jesus is the only way to heaven. We're going to die on that hill. The Trinity, we're going to die on that hill. And if someone disagrees with us, what is the result? The result is broken fellowship. If you don't believe Jesus is the only way to heaven, then you're anti-Bible. You're, you're, you're a non-believer. You're not a Christian. Those are tier one issues. We will die on these hills. Then there's tier two. These are issues that are worth debating over. Example may be mode of baptism. Now, not your Roman Catholic baptism that, that is legit heretical, but I'm talking about your conservative Presbyterian PCA mode of baptism. You can debate that with R.C. Sproul. And you're not saying R.C. Sproul's not a Christian because he differs with you on his mode of baptism. And now R.C. Sproul's with the Lord. He agrees with us now on the mode of <laughs> baptism. But second order doctrines are those that are essential to church life. 
Second order doctrines are those that are essential to church life and necessary for the ordering of the local church. But that in and of itself does not define the gospel. I can't be in a member of the same church as R.C. Sproul. But I'm not denying that he loved, that he loved the Lord and, and he was a, a wonderful theologian. Tier three. These are issues that are worth discussing. You can still stay in the same local church, but these are issues worth discussing. An example of this is the millennial view. Now, I'm amazed that people don't have a category for this. You have to have a category for this. Actually, you probably will not last at this church if you don't have a category for this. You have to have a category for this. Now, your legalist, here's what your legalists say. Your legalists say, the third tier is just as important as the first tier. If you don't agree with me on the millennium, then you don't agree with me on the exclusivity of Christ either. Oh, I'm done with you. They won't walk out. That's what a legalist does. The, 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 the third tier is just as important as the first tier. Now, a liberal, theological liberal, will say that the first tier is only as important as the third tier. Hey, I know we differ on the exclusivity of Christ, but we also differ on the millennial view. It's not a big deal. No, it's a big deal. There are hills we die on, and then there, there are things that are just worth discussing. We actually, at our church, we, we've had a two-hour panel on this. We recorded it with men in our church. You might want to check it out. We, we had a list of maybe 40 different issues, and we went through and we triaged them all. Uh, music, reform theology, I mean, everything you can possibly think about. You, you need to be clear that the millennial positions are not a matter of heresy versus orthodox. It's an in-house family debate among Christians. Now, how should local churches handle this issue? Should they require it for membership? For eldership? This church, Faith Family Church, does not list a millennial position on our statement of faith. Well, Kyle, is it, is it because you're too lazy to study it out? Are too scared someone will leave if, if we take a strong stance on it? No. I just told you I am omnial. I just spent 22 weeks preaching verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And I'm still not done. We, aren't, we ain't scared. We dodge no text. You know that by now. But we tier the millennium correctly. It is a third tier issue. Not a gospel issue not even a second-tier issue. Now, I used to be a member of a church that had premillennial on the sign out front. And in order to be a member, you had to agree with the premillennial position. I would never do that again. I, I would never join a church or, or even a missions agency or, or whatever, any other little group that required something like that. I think they're taking it too far requiring uniformity on this issue. Now, they have the right to put that in place. They absolutely have the right to put that in place. I'm just saying, I think they may be triaging it incorrectly. Now, what about the pastors at FFC? I mean, what about these pastors we love that only preach for 25 minutes? <laughs> the other guys. They'll be preaching the next two weeks, so I'm just preparing you. Daniel Hurd leans Amil. Dan Herbster leans a-mill and historic pre-mill. He's, he's working through it. Maybe pan-mill right now, but he's, he's going to land there. What, what, what about small group teachers and seminar teachers? Although most of our church is, is probably all-mill, a-mill, not all are. We have teachers in our church who are not a-mill. It's not a secret. It's not something we ask them, don't tell anyone. 
We only ask if it comes up in the text to present the three main views and then ask people to pray through it and, and land somewhere intellectually honest. We don't feel threatened by this. There's got to be room for disagreement here. I'm not, I'm not going to be pouting in heaven if I'm wrong. I'm going to be like, bro, you nailed it. Congrats. I will change my view midair if necessary. <laughs> we, we haven't had anyone not one person leave our church through the Revelation series. And I knew it would be that way because I knew your spiritual maturity. And I commend you for it. We, we can still keep the unity of this church even if we differ on this. This is not a first-tier issue or a second-tier issue. Even the concept, even the concept of having to agree on a millennial position to be in the same local church is more of a recent American concept than an ancient Christian one. You say, Kyle, what if someone in my church doesn't hold to the same view of millennium as I do? Well, you burn them at the stake. No. If someone in your church holds a different view than you, you're going to be all right. When persecution comes, You'll both be fed to the lions side by side. I wanted to show you purposefully the proponents of each view so that you would see that I read after some from all views. I've read and will continue to read after people in all three camps. I think it is spiritually immature for you to say I only read after people whom I agree with 100% on everything. Have you lost the ability to chew the meat and spit out the bones? You don't write people off for a minor difference. This endless hair splitting is not healthy. Some of the people I have the greatest respect for in this church hold a different view than me. This does not affect our relationship. If you were to ask them after the sermon, what do you think of the sermon? They would give you 10 things that God did in their heart. Why? Because they're spiritually mature. This is the last one. Take home number three. The millennium is not of importance. The millennium is not of ultimate importance because it does not last forever. The millennium is not of ultimate importance because it does not last forever. <laughs> you will last longer than the millennium. God will last longer than the millennium. The new heaven and the new earth will last longer than the millennium. We agree on more than we disagree. That there are beliefs that Bible-believing Christians hold in common, even if they have differing millennial views. Now, some of those beliefs are Jesus died to save sinners. A substitutionary atonement. Jesus will return bodily. Jesus will deal with evil forever. He will vindicate his followers. Satan will be thrown into hell. We will be given resurrection bodies. Salvation is not determined by your view on the timing of Revelation 20. It's determined by your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I have preached for two hours. It is time to pray. Father, the millennium should affect our evangelism. It's perfect time for plunder the strong man is bound 
Dear Lord, help us to be faithful witnesses this week. This is our plea. Amen. Let's stand together.